But if you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to open along with me to John's Gospel and to chapter 12 as we pick up again in our studies in John, uh, coming today to chapter 12 and to verse 12 and reading through to the end of verse 36 together. So here we have this famous scene as Jesus comes and enters into Jerusalem, uh, really bringing us to sort of the midway point of John's gospel and really the turning point of the events. The first half of John's gospel really covers about three years very, very quickly. And then this last half will really cover just a week, uh, the final week in the life and ministry of Christ. So John's gospel Chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us today. 
And if you have a Bible, please do open with me again to John chapter 12 as we consider these verses together. Indeed, just as we do so, allow me to pray for us. Oh Lord, as we come now to your word, we ask that our hearts would be stilled, our eyes and ears open, that we might see Christ in his glory, that we would hear the voice of the King speak unto us now, and that we would respond as we ought, and to come to know, to love, to follow, and to worship him. For it is in his name we now pray. Amen. Well, on the 10th of January, 49 BC, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon River as he marched towards Rome. For a Roman general to do this with an army behind him was a capital offense. And it really signaled his intent, his intent as he marched towards that city, intent upon war, intent upon coming to conquer. And so that phrase, crossing the Rubicon, it's sort of become a term for taking a course of action from which there can be no turning back. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, it was the point of no return. The only two options that lay before him in that moment were either death or glory. And as we come to the events of John 12 here, will we pick up actually less than a century after Caesar marched towards Rome. And here we have Jesus coming, not to Rome, but to Jerusalem. He comes not with an army behind him, but with crowds before him. He comes not upon a mighty war horse, but upon a young donkey. For Caesar, it was either death or glory. And yet for Christ, it is to be death and glory. In fact, glory through his death. And so as we come to consider this passage together, really three things we want to look at. First, we have the coming of the king. Second, the hour of the king. And finally, the purpose of the king. So his coming, his hour, and his purpose. And we begin then by looking at this coming. We pick up in verse 12. It says, the next day, so we know we're carrying on from what has come before. Jeff took us through these verses last week, the first part of John 12. There's Jesus being anointed by Mary. And it's massively significant because there were certain times in someone's life when they may be anointed as such. A body would be anointed with perfumes for burial. And Jesus pretty much says that's what's happening here that he has been anointed in preparation for his death. Yet so too were kings anointed before they would come to the throne, before they would take that position of glory. And so we see here, as Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he has already been set for both death and glory. And these two things will just be tied together throughout all that happens next. So there's a large crowd has gathered it's the feast of the Passover, really the biggest feast in the Jewish calendar. Estimations of maybe more than two and a half million people in Jerusalem. The city is totally swollen. It's, it's bursting at capacity here. And all this buzz and excitement over Jesus. And if you look down at verses uh, 17 and 18, we see there's actually really two crowds here. 
One who had been present with Jesus and had saw the resurrection of Lazarus, really that greatest miracle that Jesus did. And another here who are already in Jerusalem and the two crowds come together and well, word spreads about this Jesus, about the incredible things they had seen with Lazarus. And so the people are excited for him and they hear he's coming to the city and they go out to meet him. And it is this coming of the king. They take palm branches with them. And what's the significance of that? Well, during that period between the Old and the New Testament, there was a time when Jerusalem, Israel, was occupied by enemy territory or enemy nations, Antiochus Epiphanes. And what happened was the Maccabean family rose up. They led a revolt. They overthrew those oppressors. And once Israel had been liberated as such, they began to mint their own coins. And in doing so, much the way we would have the queen's head on a coin, they had palm branches on their coins. It was a mark of their liberation, of their salvation, of great national pride. And so as the people wave these palm branches, it's maybe comparable to, well, King Charles' coronation as people line the streets waving their flags. National pride, a great patriotic moment. But there's the expectation that this one who is coming, this king, is coming to bring salvation. In fact, that's what they're crying out here. Hosanna. And we sung that ourselves. And Hosanna, it really means save now. It's a cry, save now. And this Jesus, well, his name means the Lord saves. See how it's all tying together. This is the one who will save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And when they say that, they're actually quoting from Psalm 118 there. But there's this expectation, this one who comes in the name of the Lord, that he will save. But what does that salvation look like? What exactly are they expecting from this king? What are they expecting from this salvation? As they wave their palm branches, are they thinking he's come to lead another revolt? Come to get rid of the Romans? Come to restore the glory of Israel as it was during the days of David or Solomon? Come to establish a, a new kingdom, a, a greater throne to, to rule and a glorious dawn for Israel that awaits. See, he comes riding upon a donkey. Now, to us, a donkey probably isn't the most noble of animals. You, you call someone a donkey, that's more an insult than a compliment. But there is this royal expectation with this donkey. And really, all the Gospels sort of focus on Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. The other ones will give more detail. John's not really concerned with the detail. He wants the big picture here. Jesus comes on a donkey. Why? Well, in verse 15, he quotes from uh, the Old Testament, from Zechariah 9 and verse 9. We had it as our call to worship. That the one who comes upon a donkey is the king. There is this fulfillment of prophecy here. This royal expectation. And yet it's not just in Zechariah, but actually all the way back in Genesis. If you remember back in the summer, we were in Genesis. Jeff preached Genesis 49. As Jacob on his deathbed blesses his 12 sons, he gives the greatest blessing to Judah. And he says to Judah that the scepter will never depart from Judah. The scepter is in how a king will rule, that kings are going to come from the line of Judah. A king who will rule forever and ever. And Jacob also mentions in that blessing a, a donkey's colt, which is a strange thing to, to bless your son by, but the very blessings that Jacob gives 
in Genesis 49 are touched on by Zechariah and are seen fulfilled here in John 12. So all the chaos that has unfolded from Genesis, we see God has been working in and through it all to bring us to this moment because the king has come, the king that all creation longs to see. And yet we're told, verse 16, that they don't really understand it there. His disciples didn't understand these things. Not at first anyway, but after he was glorified. And we have that wonderful benefit of hindsight, don't we? We live 2,000 years after the fact. We have a whole Bible. We have four Gospels. We can piece all this together. We, we know the story. We know what's happening. But if the disciples are struggling to understand it, well, what about the other people there in Jerusalem? What about these crowds? Are they struggling to understand that we can be sure that they are? In fact, they totally misunderstand what's happening. We're going to see that this is a very fickle crowd, that in just a number of days, they'll go from celebrating him to crying out for his crucifixion. And the problem is that of false expectations. They have a a false idea of who this king is. And there's a difference that exists between the king that they need and the king that they want. And that's an absolutely crucial distinction there, and it's a distinction that still exists among us today, the Christ that we need and the Christ that we want. I was walking down Belfast a few months ago, down the uh, front of Queen's University, and there's always people out the front of Queen's, and they're either advocating for something or protesting something, and typically I don't listen. But this one day I overheard two men speaking, and one was very passionate, making the case that Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was a socialist, and he has come to bring economic liberation. Or even more recently, I stumbled across a book uh, in the library, A Marxist Looks at Jesus. I'm probably not going to read it, but just from the blurb, there's this idea, a Marxist looks at Jesus, and here's this self-confessed Marxist, and he's saying, you know, the church, the Christians, they've got Jesus wrong. Jesus was really this political revolutionary. Uh, It's quite funny because Karl Marx really did not like Jesus Christ. But anyway, we can take a Jesus who fits our politics, our ideologies, our philosophies, our lifestyle. We can have a Jesus of our own imagination who looks very much like us. We can have a Jesus of the culture who looks and fits in very well with the world in which we live, who's really no different from it. We want a king to come and really not cause that much fuss. We want a king to come and who looks just like us and who tells us that we're perfectly fine just the way we are, just keep on going. But what we need is a king who will come and not affirm us in our sin, but who will come to rescue us from it. And that's what we see here. The king we need has come. But is he the king that we want? He's the king that the crowds need, but he's not the king they want. He's not the king they expect. And so very soon, their fickle attitude will show. And yet even before that, he's already been rejected. He's been rejected in the eyes of the Pharisees. And it's really with that rejection by the Jewish leaders that brings us towards the R of the king. That's the second thing we want to think about, the R of the king. If you look at verses 9 to 11, and again verses 17 and 18, we see there how it's the resurrection of Lazarus, this greatest miracle Jesus did that has 
caused so much fuss, so much so that the Pharisees are thinking of even putting Lazarus to death just to get rid of him, to quiet the whole thing up. And the Pharisees stand there once more and they grumble. And we see their grumbling there in verse 19. They say, look, the world has gone after him. They're all obsessed with this Jesus. Now, of course, the world was looking to Jesus for the wrong reasons, weren't they? They had this false expectation of him. But nevertheless, the Pharisees don't realize just how right they are here. Because in the very next verse, we see the world going after him. Verses 20 and 21 there, there's, there's some Greeks who come, some Gentiles who come, and they wish to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks are really significant people because, well, if you look there in verse 20, they came up to worship at the feast. So these are Gentiles, but they've come to Jerusalem to worship, to partake in the Passover. They believe in the God of Israel. And we're not told how they actually feel about Jesus, but they're certainly curious. They want to meet with him, and that should make us optimistic for them anyway. But they don't go straight to Jesus. No, they go to Philip, and Philip goes to Andrew, and together Philip and Andrew go to Jesus. And there's this really random but wonderful little detail in there. When John speaks in verse 21 about Philip, he says, Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now, we've already come across Philip a number of times in the gospel, so why at this point would John try to reintroduce him? Has John sort of forgot what he's previously wrote? Well, no, of course he hasn't. But actually, it's when John first introduces Philip to us, all the way back in chapter one, he introduces him as Philip from Bethsaida in Galilee. And John wants us to remember who Philip is and where we first met him. Because the first time we meet Philip, back in chapter one, he brings his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus. And it's the same with Andrew back in chapter one also. He brings his brother Peter to meet Jesus. And there's some disciples like Peter who we know a whole lot about, but Philip and Andrew, really not that much. But we have this, a legacy of bringing people to Jesus. And that's how they're remembered, and that's what John wants to highlight here. They bring people to Jesus. That's a wonderful thing the Greeks come and say to them, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And how often are we thinking about ways to share the gospel, about those opportunities to come up in conversation? And yet, there are maybe few and far between. It's not very often someone actually comes up to you and says, Tell me about Jesus. Show me this Jesus. I mean, do you think, what, what would you say if somebody did that? If someone came to you and said, I wish to see Jesus? Would you ask them, well, well, what do you know about Jesus? Do you own a Bible? Would you like to come along to church with me? I mean, here's a great time to say, there's Christianity Explored happening this week. Do you want to come along to that? To be prepared, maybe when that time does come, that someone wishes to see Jesus, that you're ready to show them the King. That's a challenge to us in that. A challenge to be ready for those moments. A challenge to be seeking those moments as well. And yet, we're not actually told whether the Greeks here have that private audience with Jesus because, well, in verse 23, Jesus answered them that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. The hour has come. Well, previously, Jesus has been really avoiding the public eye, but now he embraces that public attention because his hour has come. The opposition towards him from the Jewish leaders has become full and final, 
And yet with that, so too the world, the Greeks, the Gentiles now seek him. And so with this, Jesus throws wide open the doors of salvation. His hour has come. But what is that hour? There's been a number of references to it throughout John's gospel, but we're always told that the hour is not yet. It's not yet, but now it's come. And sometimes the hour seems to speak about his death. Other times it seems to speak about his glorification. And that's because we really can't separate those two things. They, they go together. You see, to the world, death looks like defeat. The Pharisees, they think they've defeated Jesus when they put him to death. But actually, it's the cross that is the way to glory. That Christ will be humiliated and then he will be exalted. That he will descend to the tomb before he rises to the throne. And that's what's really happening. Death is a victory here. Jesus says it himself in verse 32, that he will be lifted up from the earth. And that's a, a picture of how he's going to die. He's going to be lifted up upon the cross, yes. But he's also going to be lifted up from the tomb. He's going to be lifted up as he ascends into glory. Can't separate his death and his glory here. They, they go together. But notice that he doesn't say the hour has come for the king or for the Christ to be glorified, but for the son of man. And Son of Man is a title that's not really used a lot in John's Gospel. The other Gospels maybe use it more. But what does it actually mean, Son of Man? Well, it's not talking about Jesus' humanity there, but really quite the opposite. It's showing us that this man is truly divine. It's a title that actually comes from the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And there Daniel is having these visions in the night. And in his visions, well, one like the Son of Man comes riding on the clouds and he comes to the Ancient of Days who is God the Father really. And as the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days, so he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that he should rule forever and ever, a kingdom that will never pass away. And that is who this Son of Man is. He is the King who comes to reign and to rule, who is given a kingdom by his Father. And we've seen all throughout John's Gospel the closeness between the Father and the Son, how Jesus works, always in obedience to his Father. Why? Because the Father has prepared glory and a kingdom for his Son. But for the Son to take that kingdom, first he must suffer the cross. That's a theme that we see throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's absolutely crucial for us to grasp this. To grasp what Christ has accomplished as he takes the throne. And we see something really important happen in another one of the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 4, even if you want to flick there quickly. In Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Three times Satan comes to tempt him. And it's that fourth, or that third rather, temptation that is most important here. Let me read it to you. It's Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. John 12 calls the devil the ruler of this world the ruler of this world, he's in a position to grant these kingdoms all this glory to Jesus if Jesus will bow down and worship him. Do you know what the temptation really is there? It's to take that shortcut. 
It's to avoid the cross. It's to have the kingdom, to have the glory, but to get out of the suffering. And what a temptation that is. And yet Jesus says no. He says no because he has come to do his father's will, to glorify the father's name, not Satan's name. And this is the crucial thing for us, that Jesus Christ is not a helpless victim in the events that follow, but he is the king who came and chose very willingly and deliberately to suffer and to die, to be crucified for his people. It's no accident. It's totally deliberate in all that Jesus does here. And he does it, as he says, like a grain of wheat that falls to the ground. It dies, but in so doing, it bears much fruit that through the death of Jesus, his people should have life in him. Of course, if the devil was at work in the ministry of Jesus, he's at work today still too, isn't he? And he comes to us. He comes to tempt, he comes to accuse, comes to pour poison into the ear of a Christian, to stir up doubts and to say, are you really loved? Are you really forgiven? Can you ever really be sure? That's the sort of thing the devil comes to bring before us. And far too often we give him our ear, we listen to him. J.C. Ryle, that great bishop of Liverpool from the 1800s, writing on this passage, had some really great words. He says, let us rest our hearts on this most comfortable thought. We have a most willing and loving savior. It was his delight to do his father's will and to make a way for lost and guilty men to draw near to God in peace. He loved the work that he had taken in hand and the poor sinful world which he came to save. We have a most willing and a loving savior. And there really is no more comfortable thought than that. A savior who willingly went to that cross and did so because he loved those whom he came to save. And so we need not listen to the devil's lies. And in fact, as the son of man is lifted up on that cross, so too is the ruler of this world cast out. That Christ Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil that the ruler of this world is dethroned as now the king of kings comes and sits upon that throne. And yet, we can raise an objection to that maybe because we look at a world around us and, well, it seems chaotic. There's that much evil and wickedness and you would say it looks like the devil's on the throne. It looks like he has control. It looks like he's in power. But really what we see with the devil is like he is a wild beast trapped in a corner, just lashing out. And that's what he does, he lashes out. If this king came to make peace, it's no wonder that the devil should work for war and to bring rumors of war. If mankind that the king came to save is made in the image of God, it's no wonder then that the devil attacks what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what it even is to be human. But the war is won. The war is won. Christ has conquered. The devil is maybe compared to Hitler in his bunker in the last days of the Second World War. The Allies are approaching. He knows the whole thing is hopeless. And yet still he will not surrender. He orders that they fight on. And that's where the devil is. The war is won. And yet still he lingers on. A powerful enemy he is. 
and yet an enemy who is defeated and dethroned. Even as John goes on to write in, in the book of 1 John in 4 and verse 4, that he who is in you, that is Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. And so we need not fear this devil, for he is defeated. He has been cast out. And yet, the wonderful comfort this should bring to us is also challenged here by some hard words Jesus has for us in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a very easy thing to love your life. And that's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to love your life. Ease and comfort and prosperity and just peace, riches and all that this world has to offer. And to love these things more than Christ and to be so infatuated with them that we never give any thought to Christ. And if we have all these things in this world but we have not Christ, at the end of our life really we have nothing. But to hate your life, that is to value Christ more than anything that this world has to offer. More than any of the riches or treasures of this world. To have nothing but to have Christ is to be richer than all. And their eternal life is to be found. And this really cuts against this idea of an easy believism. Where we can just, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I sort of nod my head towards Jesus. But that has no real meaningful impact in our lives whatsoever. Because Jesus is telling us here that there is a cost to following him. To follow Christ means inevitably we will suffer opposition. We will suffer rejection. And maybe you've encountered that recently. Maybe you get that in work. Maybe you get that at home. Maybe it's been a case where you've actually tried to invite someone to Christianity Explore and they've just laughed in your face. And there is a temptation and it comes from the devil himself to just say it's not worth the hassle. It's just not worth the hassle. Give it all up, this Christianity thing. And yet again, Jesus brings us words of great comfort in the very next verse, in verse 26. That if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. That where Christ is, there we will be also. That one day Christ will bring us to be in glory with him. But even here and now, still Christ is with us. There's no more beautiful picture than that. And that's a, a message that's played out all across Scripture. That's a message we want to grasp here today. It's the Christian's experience. It sort of mirrors Christ in a way, not any way exactly, but in a way. We suffer. We have to know that suffering in this life, but there is a glory that awaits. There is a glory beyond the suffering. And Jesus has modeled that for us. We see it even in the flow of the Psalms. We're probably all familiar with Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd. And the beautiful picture there of the shepherd who comforts his sheep, who is with his sheep, even in the dangers of this world. But it'll not be a surprise to you to know that Psalm 23 is sandwiched between 22 and 24. And I encourage you to go home and read them. Read them together. Because what we see is that the reason Jesus is able to be our good shepherd the reason he is able to comfort us and to be with us even in the valley of the shadow of death is because he has first known what it is to be forsaken. He knows what it is to suffer in Psalm 22. And yet he has risen on high. He is crowned in glory in Psalm 24. That the king of glory 
is our shepherd. He is the one who is with us. He is the one who has died for us. He suffered for us. He suffered like us. He has come to save us. He's come because he loves us. He's come to keep us. And he has come as a king for to rule us. And that brings us finally then, and very briefly, to the purpose of this king. He has come to cast out the ruler of this world. He has come to save his people. He has come to glorify his father's name. That's his chief purpose here, the the chief end even of Christ, to glorify the father's name. He says there in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Yes, Jesus is troubled because he knows the agony that awaits him. And yet we know he's not going to back out of it. He resisted the devil before. He had the chance at taking that shortcut and he wouldn't do it. He will see this through to the end because he has crossed that Rubicon. There's no coming back. He will go to the cross and he will do it for the Father's glory. And as Jesus prays that his Father's name should be glorified, so a voice speaks from heaven. The Father speaks, I have glorified it, first in sending his Son, and I will glorify it again now that the hour has come. Again, the world looks at the cross as defeat. It makes no sense that a king, a savior, would come to die. But for the God, this is the climax of his redemption plan. And all those things in the Old Testament that we read and maybe struggle to, to just grasp what's going on, all those sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, the prophets, the priests, the kings, all of these things, it's really pointing us towards this moment here, to this purpose, to this hour, that the Son of Man would be lifted up and glorified, that God's salvation plan would be shown so clear. Jesus actually says the reason that God has spoke here is for the crowd's sake, that it would confirm for them the identity of Jesus. He is the King, the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And yet even here, even after this, we still see those seeds of unbelief. Some people think, well, that was merely thunder. Others say if it was a voice, it was the voice of an angel. It couldn't be the voice of God. This Jesus, no, who is he? Who is he really? They still don't understand. They couldn't understand that the Christ would come to die. They couldn't understand that the Son of Man, this divine figure, would be crucified. They couldn't understand who Jesus was. They go on there in verse 34 to sort of talk about how this understanding that the Christ will reign forever. Again, they can't think of him dying, but of course Jesus does come to reign forever, but it's not an earthly kingdom. Still they're wrestling with these things. Still they don't understand. They're a fickle crowd, and soon they will turn on him because this is not the man they wanted. It's not the king they expected. Already the celebrations are turning sour. They have these false expectations, false hopes that's going to leave them totally empty. And so they'll call for Christ to be crucified. And finally then we have verses 35 and 6. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And as the light shines, it shines so that we might see who he is, to walk with him, to believe in him, to follow him. And we're to do that now while the light still shines for soon he will go to the cross and darkness will fall. Only a few short days of Jesus' ministry remain. And what are the people going to do with that window of opportunity? 
Will they believe in the light? Will they become sons of light? Or will they willingly choose the darkness and be overtaken by it? And this really is the dividing line of eternity. And there's absolutely no room here for apathy, no room for indifference on this whatsoever. It's the most crucial decision we ever make, that we either choose to live in the light or we shut our eyes and choose to live in the darkness. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he really? We can't just dismiss that question. It's a question that demands an answer. And if while God has given us the light of his word and the light of his gospel that we might see and know and believe in Jesus Christ, we are to do that still while that light shines, lest it cease to shine and the darkness overtake us that we ourselves cross that Rubicon one day from which there is no turning back. For the king has come, and indeed he will come again. Let us pray. Father, you have sent this king to shine light in this world. And so as we have that light shining, might we see the king in his glory. Might we look upon him. Might we believe in him that we could become sons of light, to become the children of God. Might we know a willing and loving Savior who gave his life for us. Oh Lord, keep us from the darkness. Keep us from the power of the devil, that we would not be overtaken by it. But here now on this day and this hour, we would look to the Savior, to the King, who was lifted up, who is glorified, and that we might have life in him. For so we pray through his name. Amen.